pray for God's blessing on His Word. Heavenly Father, we do pray that You would give us Jesus. Help us to see Him clearly in His Word today. That our hope would be more founded securely upon the rock that is Christ. So that we would walk by every promise that He gives. That we would know His graces through and through. And so that we would live for Him as the one who has died for us. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Our scripture passage this morning comes from the book of Ephesians, chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. And you'll find that on page 977 of the Pew Bible. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. Before moving on from Paul's declaration of the glories of the gospel and moving on to practical applications of it and implications for our lives, he wants to pause and pray for us that the truths of the gospel would be so impressed upon us that those things would be the foundation from which we draw all the grace necessary to actually live for him. And so that's what he does here the end of chapter 3. Read with me. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. You remember the story of the rich young man who came to Jesus and asked the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus told him to obey several of the commandments. And he said, I've done all of those things. Jesus responded by really putting his finger on the central issue of this man's life and said, well, sell all that you have, give it to the poor and come follow me. And the man went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus turned to the apostles and he said to them how difficult it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. On those particular days, the rich were those who were seen as blessed by God, those who have his favor because he had showered so many material blessings upon them. And if that's the case, they asked the question, who then can be saved? And Jesus responded by saying, with man, it is impossible But with God, all things are possible. And what Paul has been doing in the first two chapters, really three chapters of Ephesians, is declare, here is what is possible through the Lord Jesus Christ. And he recounts how God, through Jesus, is uniting all things in Him. Gathering together all things so that everything one day will be under the rule and reign of Jesus the gracious and the good rule of Christ. 
everything submissive to him and everything working as it should and that Jesus himself is the one who's going to overcome our spiritual deadness make us alive so that we can come to him in faith and it's Jesus who's going to be the one who overcomes racial division gathering together from the four corners of the earth people of every tribe and tongue who will be gathered together into one worldwide community to be the dwelling place of God, reconciled to God and reconciled to one another. And so Paul, just before he is about to proclaim what we are to do as the people of God, in chapter 3, verse 1, breaks off his thought. He says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, and then breaks his train of thought, not to pick it up again fully until chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. But before he gets there, he wants to pray for God's people and really pull back the curtain and let them see his prayer life for them so that they would understand what they need in order to live as people who believe that all things are possible in Jesus. And that's so important because these glories of the Gospel in Jesus are juxtaposed to the reality of Paul's situation. A prisoner for Christ Jesus. Paul himself is laboring in prison. And what he tells them at the end of this section of a personal note in chapter 3, verse 13, he says, I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. He knows that the glories of the gospel that he's writing about have a tendency to be muted in our minds and in our hearts when we experience difficulty, when sufferings come along, when things don't work the way that they're supposed to. A job search that's not going as expected that brings doubts. Child rearing that's not, quote, by the book as it should be. Sins that never die. Family members that are too difficult to love at times. Ministry efforts that appear to demand more than what we feel like we can actually give to people. Fears that become great monsters in life. Wondering, what's the future going to hold for me? So there are these great glories of the Gospel of what God can do in Christ Jesus. Juxtaposed to the sufferings of Paul and the sufferings and trials of God's people. And so we wonder, are all things really possible in Jesus? Paul says, I don't want you to lose heart. So what do we need to do if we're going to live as though all things are possible with Christ? First, we need this. We need a posture of humble dependence. A posture of humble dependence. Verse 14 says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. Here is Paul, bowing before the Father. A picture of humble dependence upon the grace of God. Now, Jewish custom was to enter into the temple and stand to pray. You might think of Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector where both approach the temple. But the tax collector stands off, but both of them stand to pray. And it's only in certain occasions of Great crisis where we find people in the Scriptures bowing down 
getting on their knees before God. Think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane where He was in such anguish that He was sweating drops of blood thinking about facing the cross and the alienation of His heavenly Father. And He bowed down before Him. Bowed down to His, his face to the ground. And here the Apostle Paul is doing the same thing. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father. Paul has been thinking and contemplating and writing about all the glories of Jesus Christ, of what Jesus is going to do and is doing in the world and has done on the cross. And it bows him down before the Lord. These glories of Jesus. Paul has a clear understanding of the mercies of God that welcome him into the family of God. Remember last week you heard in chapter 3, how Paul is amazed that the revelation of the mystery of Christ has been given to him. Of all people, the persecutor of the church, and now he's the one who receives the revelation of Jesus to pass it along to the church. Notice how he speaks of himself. Verse 7 of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, his grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul recognizes, I'm the least of the apostles. I should not be here. I was a persecutor of the church. I should not be the one that God revealed Himself to and the glories of Christ and His gospel of grace. But I've been welcomed into the family. and Because of that, he bows himself down before the Father in prayer. And notice what he prays. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, recognizing from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. It's a bit of an awkward saying. What does Paul actually mean here? I think what he's driving at here is that there are different groups or families or clans, you might say, in both heaven and on earth, which comprise this one universal family of God that he has been speaking of, of being one in Christ, so that all the angels and archangels, the seraphs and the cherubim, and the saints on earth and the saints in heaven, all of these families or clans of people make one family of God. And He is the Father. And we have His name, Paul says. He has given us His name. When we were baptized, we were baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, naming in the Scriptures is an act of authority. Adam, when he named the animals as exercising the authority God gave to him, name them, rule over them. When God the Father gives His name to the church, to the people of God, He's saying, now my authority is over you. So that I set the course for your life. I set the course for the church. I protect her. I guard her. I keep her. I give her my love. I give her my compassion. I give her my grace. She is mine. And I own her. Paul is recognizing this. And he's submitting to it. And for the Christian who has been brought into the family of God, this ought to be our posture of humble dependence so that we bow our knees before our Heavenly Father. And say, Father, you have your way with me.
You rule over me. You protect me. You guard me. You guide me. You show your compassion and your love towards me. And one day you will welcome me into your glory. So here Paul bows his knees and asks the Father, as he says, who is rich in glory to provide everything that we need. Now here's the point. As we consider how to live trusting that all things are possible in Christ, it's not actually until we get to the point of humble dependence upon the Father and bowing our knees before Him that the power of God begins to flood into our lives. It begins to rule over our lives. begins to manifest itself and show itself in our lives. Because when this is our disposition, God's power is most clearly displayed in our lives. Think of the Apostle Paul. Hardened sinner. Rebellious against Jesus. Persecuting the church. And the power of God was absent from his life. Think of Paul the Apostle. Humbled. Broken. A man beaten and whipped. Shipwrecked. Imprisoned. Eventually crucified. And in him the all-surpassing power of God was at work. Why? Because he had humbled himself and bowed his knees before the Lord. Remember when Jesus went back to his own hometown, Nazareth, and no one received him? And he said to the apostles, a prophet is not without honor except for in his own hometown. And we're told that Jesus did not do many mighty works because of their unbelief. In other words, as long as we have a proud, self-sufficient posture, God is pleased to withhold the power of His Gospel of grace and the power of Jesus Christ to be at work in our lives. So that actually we're the ones who have made all things impossible simply by our posture of self-reliance. But God wants to show that the all-surpassing power belongs to Him. And when we relinquish dependence on ourselves and commit our way to the Father, we will begin to experience the power of the Gospel in a greater fashion. This is the very reason. This is the very reason that God often takes us into situations that are too hard for us to handle. That are humanly speaking beyond our capacity. Why? Because He actually delights to show His all-surpassing power in our lives, if only we would humble ourselves before Him and bow our knees and come to Him in dependence. Certainly, we are oftentimes people who want to fix it, who want to solve it, who want to make things right, who want to seek holiness in our own strength and our own power rather than by faith in Jesus, who want to overcome all things by ourselves. Now, God uses means. And he uses our efforts. You might think of Oliver Cromwell, the Lord Protector of England, who once said when he was about to go into battle, trust God and keep your powder dry. God uses means. But he first and foremost wants the means of our humble dependence upon him. That when we bow ourselves before him, he is pleased to exercise his powerful grace through Jesus. Bowing our knees means that even though we work and we plan and we strategize, 
we actually look to God to be the one to take care of us. We look to Him to be the one to fulfill His promises. Some of us are planners. Some of us are doers. We like to have everything scheduled out. We like to have the plan, and we're going to accomplish the plan. And for some of us, we actually may need to learn to bow our knees and simply wait upon God to work. Others of us may simply need to say, Father, I've made a mess of things. I've sought to do things on my own. I've sought my own wisdom. I've sought to accomplish my own purposes. Forgive me, I've made a mess of things. Some of us need to simply learn to submit to God's ways of doing things and not do things our way. As I said before, Paul is in prison. I doubt very seriously that he thought this was God's plan for his life. The successful plan of Christian living which lands you in prison. But humbly bowing before God the Heavenly Father means saying, Father, You have the right and good plan for me. Help me to submit to it. Help me to walk in it. So we need to bow our knees in humble dependence because the great issue is the inward posture of our hearts. But secondly, if we're going to live as if all things are possible in Christ, we need to pray for spiritual strength. If we're going to become the people of God and the church that God delights to indwell and the church that God is working in to make more and more like His Son, Jesus Christ, then we need to pray for the strength to do so. And what we find here is Paul's second prayer in this particular letter to the Ephesians. And there are a number of requests that we see in verses 16 down to verse 19. But we can sort of summarize them under two petitions. The first is this. Strength to make room in our hearts for Christ. Strength to make room in our hearts for Christ. Look what he says in verse 16. That according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. So Paul here is asking that God would give of the riches of His glory so that you and I would be strengthened with power through the Spirit in our inner being. That is to say, in our hearts, He wants us to be strengthened. Why? Verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So that Christ may actually dwell in our hearts through faith. Now Paul has already said that Christ dwells within every believer. So how is it here that he's praying that Christ would dwell within our hearts through faith? I think he's simply saying that there's a greater degree no matter where we are and what our spiritual state is in this earthly life, there's always a greater degree to which Christ can dwell within us. In other words, it's the experience of the indwelling Christ that needs to grow within us. And what we need is the strength that the Spirit can provide. This great inward working within us in order to make more room for Jesus to dwell. Friends, our hearts are filled with all kinds of things, aren't they? Some of us have so many fears within our hearts we can't see straight. We're not sure what the next day is going to hold for us. And we're afraid. And that fear, in some sense, takes up room 
which Jesus longs to fulfill. There are idols within our hearts. There are false gods that we worship. And they take up room in our hearts. Room that Jesus longs to fulfill. There are lusts that we have. We want more. Give me more of this. Give me more of that. Do you see Paul says here, what we actually need is the inward working of the Spirit so that we can believe in Jesus more and more so that we make room for Him in our hearts. Secondly, not only strength to make room for Christ, but secondly, strength to comprehend the love of Christ. If we look here in verse 17, he says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. He's speaking here of a, of a plant that's rooted in soil or of a building that has its foundations sunk deep into bedrock. And he's saying that the love of Christ given to us is what is the soil or the bedrock out of which our faith in Him grows. And what does He want? He goes on in verse 18, that uh, may, have, um, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of God, the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Paul prays for strength so that we can actually comprehend and take in this amazing love that God has for us. And notice that it's tied to the rest of the saints. That we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. We often understand the love of God based on our past experiences, don't we? And we need the experiences of the rest of the body. How has God loved the rest of the body? Not only in this individual body, but the worldwide church throughout the ages. When you read of biographies of Christian saints who have gone before and you have seen the mercies that God has shown to them, then you begin to grow in your understanding and comprehension. This is the same God that loves me. He can do the same things in me as well. Now in this prayer for strength to comprehend with all the saints, he says that we would see its breadth, its length, its height, and its depth. Paul has had in his mind as he's been writing in chapter 2 this image of the temple rising up and he's thinking of its breadth and its length and its height and its depth. These great dimensions and he's saying now the love of Christ is all around us. It surrounds us in every way and it's seen most clearly in the cross of Jesus Christ where Jesus would give up His own life for us so that we could have life in Him. But guess what? What he says here is that it's so great you can't comprehend it. And that's actually the secret. That you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. You see, when we grow to understand and comprehend the love of God, what we realize is that there's no end to it. We'll never get to the end of it. There's no risk of ever coming to the point where God doesn't love me. A situation in which I find myself where the love of God is not with me. 
but rather it's infinite, just like God is infinite. And it will never run out. And while God's love comes to all of us through the same cross, it doesn't take us all down the same path, does it? Some of us have easier paths than others. Some of us have particular challenges that others do not face. Sometimes we begin to wonder, is is His love with me? Is it with me the way it's with that person over there? It seems as though their family doesn't have the same problems that our family does. They don't have the same struggles with their occupation the way that I have struggles with my occupation. And we can begin to wonder, is His love really with me the way it's with everybody else? Why do we need to be strengthened in these ways? Because not every prayer will be answered in a way that I think displays the power and the love of God. There are many prayers that we make. There are many petitions that we put before the Lord. And there are times when we wonder, is His love with me? Are all things really possible? Nothing seems to be moving here. And what I actually need more than anything else is the inward strength that He gives to make room for Jesus and to soak in His love so that I'm confident that the Heavenly Father has good intentions for me. That what He means is really to bless me. Because if you notice what Paul goes on to say here, is a greater power that is at work in us that we often don't realize. Verse 19. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now he said that the church back in chapter 1 verse 23 is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So what could it possibly mean that here he prays that we would be filled with all the fullness of God if God's fullness is with us. Well, actually, it might be better translated, filled unto the fullness of God. So that just like I was telling the children, the more we're filled with Jesus, filled with His love and grace, the more we attain the measure of the fullness of God's character becoming more and more like Him in everything that we do. Now that's a greater power than we often realize. And it's one that we ought to pray for. We pray for the things that we're concerned for. Is this our concern? That the power of God would be at work in me so that I would attain the fullness of the measure of God so that I would look more and more like His Son. That's what Paul prays for. And it's what we ought to pray for as well. He would transform us into His likeness. Well, finally this. We not only need a posture of humble dependence and prayers for strength, but we need to praise God for His immeasurable power. In response to such an amazing work of God, look in verse 20. Paul breaks out into praise. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. He begins to praise God because his hope is in God and in the power of God. And what he says here is that God is able. But it's not simply able. 
it's a word that comes from the same root that we get powerful or strength. God is powerfully able to do certain things. And what is He powerfully able to do? He says, far more abundantly than all we ask or think. He's able to do far more. You're probably familiar with the old attack on the biblical claim that God is infinite in power. Can God make a rock too big for Him to move? It's a nonsense kind of question. But a real question is something like, can God heal my body? Can God restore my broken relationships? Can God really take away all my sins? Can God release me from the bondage to my idolatries? Can God make me satisfied with Himself so that the world loses its hold on me? Can God work powerfully in the lives of my children? Can God save the most hardened friend from their rebellion against Him? Can God prosper the work of my hands? Can God provide me all that I need to serve Him? Can God give me a spouse? Can God take away my loneliness? Can God see me through this time of hardship? Can God overcome my doubts? Can God direct my path? Can God hold me in His hands until He receives me into glory? And the answer is yes. But more than yes. Far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think. Far more than you can ask or even imagine. What do you ask for? What are the kinds of things that you ask for from God? What do you imagine is possible? What do you consider that He could do? And do you even ask for those things? What do we as a church ask for? What can we even imagine could possibly take place here? What can happen in Hendersonville because of our ministry? Can we imagine great things? Can we even pray great things? Because God can do far more abundantly than anything that we can ask or imagine. There's a lady by the name of Mary Nelson who in 1983 was working in her garden in St. Louis. She was without children. She longed for children. And there in her garden as she was working, she prayed that day, Lord, please give me a child that I could raise and care for. Allow me to bring into this world safely a child. Well, it never actually happened for her. But within nine months, she had started a crisis pregnancy center. And because of that, through her and through many people after her, literally thousands and thousands and thousands of young children have been brought safely into this world. God can do far more abundantly than all that we ask or imagine. So often what I want is selfish. It comes from an imagination and thinking that is lacking in wisdom and tainted with sin. Because of God's power, because of His wisdom, because of His grace. He may be doing things in my life and in your life that are merely preparations for generations to come. It may be that He is doing things in your life 
And though you feel a sense of frustration, that there is a fruitlessness to it, that there are other people who are being blessed and maybe even brought into the kingdom of God because of what God is doing through you. And you may just not know it. God can do far more abundantly than all we ask or imagine. Will we entrust ourselves to Him? A family went to the world of Coke in Atlanta. It's basically the museum for the whole Coca-Cola company, and it's filled with lots of different exhibits and theaters and various things. One little fact caught my attention. Back in the early 20th century, when Coca-Cola was still being distributed to soda shops and mixed by soda shop uh, personnel there to give to individual customers, two lawyers came to the CEO of the Coca-Cola company and said, we think that you ought to bottle your product pre-mixed in individual uh, bottles so that people can take them and drink them whenever and wherever they would like. Now the CEO thought that was a foolish waste of time and energy. And so he sold the rights to bottle Coca-Cola for $1 to these two men. I don't know how many millions of dollars the Coca-Cola company forfeited over the years. All because a sense of pride and self-sufficiency. Brothers and sisters, the last thing that we want is to forfeit the power of God. What Paul calls in chapter 1 the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe. Let us not forfeit it because we don't come with a posture of humility and pray for the strength that He can give and praise Him for a power that is able to do far more than we could ever ask or imagine. Because the all-surpassing power belongs to God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do come to You and bow our knees before You. And we pray that as we grow in a posture of humility and seek the strength that You can give and pray for Your powerful working, Lord, that we would be able to see it in all of its glory as Jesus works His grace here. May You do great things and may we become lesser as Jesus becomes greater. It's in His name we pray. Amen.